Now, when we uh, last visited James two weeks ago, we took what on a superficial reading of the text looks like a bit of a diversion off the topic of perseverance into the lives of the rich and poor man. Well, in fact, the lives of the rich and the poor man, as we saw, uh, had a great deal to do with perseverance because it provided us with a clear picture of the motivation to press on when things are difficult. You know, God, our Creator, knows us very well and He knows exactly how to encourage us. And just as a bit of a recap, I closed with these thoughts. Irrespective of our circumstances, the gift of eternal life in heaven through Jesus has a value that cannot be quantified in any human terms, and we ought to treat it as such, in good times and bad, to look upward to God and not inward to ourselves. Then we must search our hearts to see where our trust lies. Does our trust lie in God, or does our trust lie in wealth and materialism? And we should always guard our hearts against being like that. We should always trust in God. God's gift of eternal life has a size and significance that is without precedent. There is nothing that ever has been as big or ever will be as big as the gift of Jesus Christ. And we should take time every day to contemplate this and we should live our lives accordingly. So this week we're going to start with James 1 verse 12. And I'll read. Blessed is the man who perseveres in temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life that he promised to those who love him. When I looked at this, I realized that I really should have dealt with this in the last sermon. But I was conscious that a sermon too long may have left some of us unconscious. So that's where I, <laughs> that's why I stopped where I did. Uh, we will go on to look at verses 13 to 18 today as well, and uh, that brings up an important part of theology that, that we have looked at before uh, when I did the series on providence, but it is really important to go back to it, um, and it is a bit of a different look at it anyway, so, so that's going to be really valuable, I believe. But first, verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres in temptation, for when he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life that he promised to those who loved him. Now, if I mention the Beatitudes, I guess most of us would think immediately about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they who mourn, blessed are the meek, and so on. Now, this word Beatitude, it sounds really flash. And that's exactly right. It's very appropriate because it describes a state of supreme happiness. Now, you know, we've got the, the, the line of um, improvements, good, better, best. Is there anything beyond supreme? I can't think of anything past supreme, okay? So it is the most happiness that we can have. And this word blessed that's used in Matthew 5 and in James 1.12 is a translation of the Greek word makarios, which is used in both these instances in the Bible. And as I said, it, conf it conveys the idea of a profound inner joy and satisfaction. So we can see why that word beatitude, with its similarity to the word beautiful, is used for the blessings described in Matthew and also here. Now note that it refers to an inner spiritual satisfaction, and we shouldn't misunderstand this text as promising any material benefit. 
I can guarantee you that God is not going to give you $10 for mowing the lawn. James is always consistent in showing us the difference between the Christian and the world. He takes us past the immediate, which is where we tend to, to focus all the time, and uh, he draws our attention to where we should be looking as Christians, which is forward. We should be looking actually to the end of our lives, because that is when we go to spend eternity with Him. Our fleshly tendency is always to ask, well, you know, what's in it for me? Why should I do this? And uh, that's especially true when we're asked to do something that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. And uh, we really generally look for something that we can hold in our hands right now. But you know, God calls us to be different to those of the world, to be uncomplaining servants and examples of His nature, and to keep our eyes fixed on heaven and be motivated by a deep gratitude for the gift that He has given us in Jesus. You know, it's one thing to suffer, but it is the way that we endure that suffering that marks us as children of God. If we look back to verse 3, you might remember that the product of the testing of our faith is a thing called perseverance. And verse 12 takes this theme a little bit further. Um, the attainment of perseverance is its not a, uh, a one-off. We can't just tick the box and say, well, today I've got perseverance, so now I'm going to move on to, to something else. If we're going to be effective Christians, we have to continually practice our perseverance. <laughs> Why? As the actors say, what is my motivation? Well, the first thing is, God tells me to do that. And, well, frankly, that should be enough. But also, we need to see that this perseverance thing is an important part of our steps on the road towards heaven. Perseverance is a practical and living demonstration of understanding and acceptance of God's requirements for us. I must confess that to start with, I had a bit of difficulty with this verse because it talks about being proved. And that seems to suggest that there might be something we have to do to earn our place in heaven. However, as I thought it through, I realized what James is saying. Now, of course, we know that there isn't a test to enter heaven. Christ died for our sins and paid the full price for them so that we can go there. It's offered to us as a free gift. We cannot earn it, and we don't deserve it. Now, this is called justification. Christ's death gives us the right legal standing before God. After we have been justified by Christ, we start a journey called sanctification, through which God continuously changes us, He shapes us towards being more Christ-like, and He tries to help us to live a more sinless life. And it's not a one-sided activity. God asks for our active cooperation. You know, we're not, going to, um, we're not going to suddenly find ourselves being made Christ-like. We can't expect it as a sudden miracle. We have to study God's Word. We have to listen to what He has to say to us. And we have to do it every day. And this is where we meet James urging us to continually practice perseverance, well, just because it makes us more useful Christians and it helps us along this journey of sanctification. 
One thing is certain, the opportunity for practice is not going to be lacking because we swim in an absolute sea of temptations, but we must not pause to drink. Now, I seem to have got into a bit of a habit of asking questions. So, so my question for this week, you will start off for 10. Who has heard of the rhyme of the ancient mariner? Yes, okay. Uh, for those of you who haven't, it was a poem written by a man called Samuel Taylor Coleridge, and it was written between 1797 and 1798. And I don't believe that even Andrew was alive then. Okay, so does anybody know some famous lines from the rhyme of the ancient mariner? Exactly. You know, I'm very impressed because I was expecting the bit about the boy standing on the burning deck picking his nose like mad. <laughs> so, yes, it's marvellous. Exactly. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. When I was a, a teenager, I read avidly. One of the things I really liked were these stories about people who had been shipwrecked and spent 47 months in a lifeboat armed with a bent pin and, you know, a bit of plastic and what have you. And one of the common themes in those was the enormous difficulty they had in getting an adequate supply of fresh water. And despite the fact that they were surrounded by cubic kilometers of water, they weren't able to drink it because of the dissolved salt. Now, it turns out that um, if you drink any significant amount of salt water, and I'm not talking about what happens when you go surfing, the... Um, the salt in the seawater really messes up your body's chemical balance. The first thing is that, ironically, the salt makes you feel a lot thirstier. So you drink more water and it just makes the whole thing worse. But the, the, the very worst thing about it is that the sodium uh, messes up the way that your, um, your nerves transmit information and uh, you start getting seizures and your heart starts beating in a funny way and eventually it kills you. So what's the point of all this? Well, I spoke about us swimming in a sea of temptations that we shouldn't drink. And uh, it's exactly the same. If we drink of those temptations, it's going to mess up our spiritual balance and uh, it may even bring death to us. And this is why we should rely on the living water that is given to us by Jesus. This water allows us to know God and His saving grace. The grace that gives us cleansing of our souls, gives us eternal life in heaven and permits the Holy Spirit to transform us. And I'd just like to read to you from John 4, verses 10 to 15, what, um, what Jesus says. Now this is uh, quite a well-known um, bit of scripture. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. We have to 
we have to go for that, that living water. We can't ignore it because we will die if we don't have it. In the third part of uh, verse 12, James dangles the carrot of a crown of life. So what does this mean? Well, the Greek word for crown is Stephanus, and that made me very excited because my wife's maiden name is Stephen. So <laughs> that's uh, something I might actually remember for more than five minutes. And uh, this word Stephanus can be used to describe a royal crown. However, its most common use is for the laurel wreath that's given to a successful athlete. And we still you know, see that, uh, that ceremony being performed today. Now, a crown of life might seem to be like some sort of special status that we're going to enjoy while we're here on earth. Um, and although this is somewhat true for Christians, James is really talking about something much bigger, much more significant, and, of course, much more enduring. I mean, to say eternal life is much more enduring is not an adequate description, I guess. Most of us here today, we work for a living, and we understand the idea of being rewarded for that work by our paycheck. Um, that check gives us access to the necessities of life. We can get power and water and telephone, and we can go and buy some food and, and clothes and stuff like that. And hopefully, there is some left over for a few luxuries, some disposable income. And for these reasons, we tolerate work that is sometimes unpleasant or uninteresting. Well, James is sort of saying the same thing. What we do during our lives here on earth might be similarly unpleasant, but we should be able to put up with it because we can look forward to our reward in heaven. There's a really important difference to this reward here because we should never ever think that it is the fruit of our labor. It was Christ's bloody and painful work on the cross that brought it for us. It's a reward we did not strive for, and yet it is freely and lovingly offered. We can absolutely depend on God to deliver. One of the commentaries that I was looking at when I was studying for the sermon puts it this way. This promise he made before the world was, who cannot lie nor deceive, and who is able to perform and is faithful and will never suffer his faithfulness to fail, so that this happiness is certain and may be depended upon. You know, I've, uh, I've certainly had the experience um, that my paycheck has not hit my bank account at the end of the month because the company that I've been working for is a bit wobbly. And maybe some of you have had that experience too. The reward that God has promised us is not like that. It will always be there for us. We can depend on Him. If we are motivated to strive because of that reward that was brought for us by Jesus, it should be out of gratitude. You know, at the very least, we should be thankful for what we have received. And out of that thanks should come our effort and our striving. And for this reason, we should do as James says and keep going when things seem too tough to handle. So we're going to move on now to the uh, next part of James, which is verses 13 to 17. No one experiencing temptation should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God is not subject to temptation to evil, and he himself tempts no one. Rather, 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire conceives and brings forth sin, and when sin reaches maturity, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. All good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, from whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. When you just read through James, it looks like he starts off on a theme and then suddenly he's over here somewhere. And this is one of these occasions. Why has he suddenly shot off onto the topic of temptation? Well, I'm sure it's because when he wrote it, people were the same as they are today. You know, one of our first reactions when the conscious, con our conscience starts sticking at the knife in and saying we've done, so done something wrong is to, to blame God. Hey, God, you know, you say you're in charge of everything, um, but, you know, I'm not such a bad guy. I gave 50 bucks to the SPCA and I haven't kicked the cat for ages. You know, and why should I have to suffer like this, you know? Anyway, you made that apple, it was big, juicy, and red, and I was just behaving the way that you made me to behave. Well, that's just rubbish, isn't it? We mustn't confuse testing with tempting. And uh, this distinction is demonstrated for us in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was hungry. The tempter approached and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones should become loaves of bread. He said in reply, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and made him stand on the parapet of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and with their hands they will support you lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Then the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their magnificence. And he said to him, All these I shall give to you if you will prostrate yourself and worship me. At this Jesus said to him, Get away, Satan, it is written, The Lord your God shall you worship and him alone shall you serve. And the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Well, Satan's perspective of this, instant, of this incident is clearly that he was tempting. He was trying Jesus. But Jesus saw it very clearly as a test, and it's one that he passed with flying colors. And in doing so, gave us some very good pointers as to how we should deal with temptation, which I'll get onto in a little while. I had, a, I had an interesting thought along, along the way of um, preparing this, which I think, in my little logical mind, proves James's point. Okay, now God does everything perfectly, doesn't he? So if God did tempt us, who would be able to resist it? You know, what would be the point? Because God is a perfect tempter, we would always perfectly fail. We would never move forward in the process of sanctification. But the very worst thing about that is that in doing so, we would always sin. And it's impossible for me to imagine any circumstances 
in which this would please God or be his desire. God owns everything and he can do anything. There's absolutely nothing that he cannot do or have if he desired it. And this means that God has no interest in or use for temptation, as stated by the second part of verse 13. I mean, there's, there's nothing you can go to God and say, hey God, you know, if you do this, I'll give you this, because he already owns it. It's pointless. And this gives us the first argument that James has for us, which is that the very nature of evil makes it utterly separate to God. When we hear in Isaiah 6.3 of the seraphim declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with His glory. We are being shown that there is no trace of anything other than holiness in God's character. I mean, face it. If there was just one holy, well, it might mean that He's fairly holy. If there were just two holies, it might mean, well, there might just be a smidgen of something other than holiness. But three holies, I believe it's absolutely deliberate that there are three holies here. It says to us, God is perfectly and utterly holy. There is, there is nothing other than holiness in Him. And therefore it is impossible that He should personally do anything that was even slightly evil. In the next verse, James gives his second argument about evil, which is the nature of man. Rather, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So, who does that desire belong to and where does it come from? Every single one of us has experience of desire. Desire belongs to each and every one of us. And that's why in this verse, James talks about each person. Not some people as plural. Each person means every single one of us. Our desire is an insatiable thing and nobody escapes it. And our desire or lust is most often expressed as a visible part of our sinful nature. And uh, just as a bit of a by the way, although we nowadays associate lust and desire most often with matters of a sexual nature, the Greek word which is used for lust, epithumia, refers to a deep, strong desire or longing of any kind, which can be good or bad. It's an amoral word. We mustn't underestimate the strength of desire. The verbs that, uh, the Greek verbs that are used for lure and entice are exalco and delazio. I'm probably not pronouncing them right. The first has very strong connotations of being dragged away, okay? Um, desire is very powerful and may well move us to places that we, we really don't want to, to go. We're being taken there against our will. And uh, that's dangerous. Sometimes we may rationalize putting ourselves in harm's way. You know, it's okay if I just have one more piece of chocolate because I'll, I'll stop there. I won't eat the whole packet. There was a saying that I... I came across that's from the Jewish Sanhedrin, and it says this. Evil con concupiscence, and that's just a fancy word for lust, is at the beginning like the thread of a spider's web. Afterwards, it is like a cart rope. Afterwards, it is like a cart rope. Which one, I ask you, is going to be easier to break? The spider's web at the beginning or the cart rope at the end? 
Now this word uh, delazio that I spoke about earlier is commonly used for fishing bait. So, just like a fish, we swim up to the temptation. We don't see the hook. We're overcome with desire for that bait. We bite it, and then we are dragged away against our will to be cooked and made into somebody's dinner. It's foolish for us to imagine that the responsibility for this belongs to anybody except us. Although Satan himself is portrayed as the tempter, he is only appealing to a weak part of us in which he is truly expert. So, although Satan does tempt, the blame for acting on the temptations remains with us. Paul speaks for all of us as he illustrates his own frustration with this in Romans 7. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh. The willing is ready to hand, but doing the good is not. For I do not do the good I want, but I do the evil I do not want. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So then, I discover the principle that when I want to do right, evil is at hand. For I take delight in the law of God in my inner self, but I see in my members another principle at war with the law of my mind, taking me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Miserable one that I am, who will deliver me from this mortal body? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore I myself with my mind serve the law of God, but with my flesh the law of sin. Every single one of us has an echo in our hearts when we read that because we've all been through it. Paul takes responsibility for his own lusts and we ought to as well. We must now consider the nature of lust as the third proof that God is not temptation's source. Verse 15 says, Then desire conceives and brings forth sin and when sin reaches maturity it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. James has correctly identified the culprit earlier in verse 14, which is us, but in verses 15 and 16 he goes on to give lust a shape and a face. When we understand our inner workings, it's going to be very useful for us to help in controlling them. Now that word epithumia that I used earlier, and is variously translated lust or desire, although it is morally neutral, it is of the feminine form for grammatical purposes. Okay, that's not something we do very much in English. We don't uh, say that words are masculine or feminine, but in many other languages they do have a gender. And this is important because in this passage we are given the, uh, the, the, the picture of a mother giving birth to her child, which unfortunately is sin. So desire is the first part of the journey towards actual sin. Desire comes from inside us for apparently no reason. It is most often sparked by our eyes. We open perhaps the latest hunting and fishing catalogue, or we drive past the Toyota dealership and we see the latest and flashest Land Cruiser, and suddenly we have that little itch, that need to have one just like it. And the desire to lust or sin starts in just the same way. We might see or think or hear of something, and suddenly we find that we have the need to do it. The next stage is deception. At this point, the, uh, the work moves from our emotions to our mind. 
Now I've just mentioned desire as an itch. Now an itch is a feeling we can tolerate, we can sit there and grit our teeth and put up with it, or we can move a hand and, and scratch it. In the case of, of sinful desire, our action is to start to rationalize its atonement. Okay? It won't matter. I'll only do it once. Nobody will see it. Well, there's a hundred little arguments that we have to con convince ourselves that this is a good idea to do it. And then we come to a place where although we have seen the danger, there are red lights going off and there are bells going, our conscience is screaming at us, but we see the perceived reward as being too big to outweigh any possible harm. And it is at this point, James says, desire conceives. The sin has been given life and it starts to grow. So now we move on to the third stage, which is design. I've seen it. I've made excuses why I should do it. Now I'm going to engage my will, and I'm going to practically work out how I'm going to do it. If we don't stop now, we're going to move on to the final stage, which is disobedience, where that sin is actually born. Up to this point, I've just been thinking about sin. I've just been considering doing it. But when I actually act in that disobedient way, at that point, now I have committed sin. At any point, I can choose to stop this process. And it's obvious that the earlier I do it, the easier it's going to be. Little monsters are a lot easier to squash than big ones. I struggle with desire every day. I want to tell you I've been very convicted by, by preparing this sermon. If you have a look on the dashboard of my truck, you'll see this box sitting there. And it's looking a bit faded because it's been sitting there for a while. And it's sitting here because I have an unreasonable lust for tools. Now, I already have a pair of these pliers. Okay? But you know the spring that uh, returns this knob is broken and I really needed a smaller pair. At least that's what was going through my head when I went into the shop and bought them. But when I got outside and sat with him in the car and opened the box, I realized that I was a dummy. I actually felt very foolish. I didn't need these, and I especially didn't need to spend that money. So I decided to keep this box on the dashboard of my car just to remind me of that feeling so that the next time that that, uh, that little itch starts, I can look at the box and hopefully I won't scratch it. So, if you have a problem, I suggest you find yourself a pair of pliers. <laughs> now, this is a very practical suggestion, but it still leaves me stuck in the cycle of desire, deception, and design. How am I going to deal with that? God's Word has some advice which recommends dealing with these issues permanently at the level of the mind. We can't stop the way that we feel. Okay? If we stop and think about that for a while, emotions are not something that we can stop. We can choose to suppress them. I might be feeling very angry, but there's a smile on my face. Okay? But I'm still going to feel angry. I can't stop that. However, I can deal with what is happening in my mind. And if I do that, that's really the earliest practical stage that I can deal with temptation. So in Romans 12.2, Paul counsels us 
do not conform yourself to this age, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and pleasing and perfect. And in Paul's letter to the Philippians, we read in chapter 4, verse 8, how we can bring about that renewal. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we dwell on worldly things, we are going to inevitably desire worldly things. It's just natural. But the same rule holds true. If we dwell on good and godly things, then we will desire good and godly things. And this is why it is so important to study God's Word regularly and pray. Now, I can't even really describe how I feel about saying this, but somebody mentioned to me one day, and I'm sure everybody knows it, you know, when you point at somebody, you've got a whole bunch more fingers pointing right back at yourself. And um, I, I feel incredibly convicted by this. But I hope that you do too. I pray that we will be motivated to spend time in God's Word, that we will be motivated to pray, that we will be motivated to fill our hearts and minds with good and godly things. And this means that we have to make an effort. It means that we have to keep this before ourselves and sometimes do things that are not going to make us feel good. We might not want to get up early. We might not want to stay up late. We might want to watch some TV. But we should be spending time praying and studying God's Word. And we means me. If we really want to change in our lives, this is where it starts. Remember that the process of sanctification requires our active cooperation. God will guide us, but we must do. It is up to us to act. The stakes we are playing for are high indeed, and James does not mince his words. When sin reaches maturity, it gives birth to death. What sort of death is James talking about? Well, it's both kinds, physical and spiritual. For a non-believer, sin really does lead to death. Physical death, and worst of all, separation from God forever. And it's not just being separated. You're not going to go to a grey place somewhere and just not be. Someone who is a non-believer and is separated from God is going to spend eternity receiving the consequences of God's wrath and anger in hell. That's not something to look forward to. For a believer, continual sin may mean physical death, although Christ's saving grace will keep them from spiritual death. And 1 Corinthians 11.30, Paul says of some believers who are taking communion in an unworthy manner, that is why many among you are ill and unfirm, and a considerable number are dying. We should be really, really careful about sin. You know, if we look at it face on, there's nothing to recommend it past a moment's gratification. And it stands in the way of monumental reward. And we've seen that from 
James's earlier verses. It's not for nothing that James begs us, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. We must expose what we are to the clear light of God, recognize it, and deal with it. James has spent some time demonstrating what God is not. Now he tells us what God is. All good giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. Why does James use this term, Father of lights? You know, it's the only time that that expression is used in the whole Bible. I think it's because he knows that we recognize power. If we need proof of God's power, we have only to step outside at night to see the stars in all of their glory and know that God put them there and moreover that he even knows every single one's name. As we regard that evidence of God's power, it should encourage us to take God's rules for our lives very seriously indeed. God is the absolute opposite of sin and evil. Every good thing comes from him and him alone. We can completely trust that this is the case because he never changes, not even in the slightest, tiniest way. That's why James says there is no alteration or shadow caused by change. Now, if good things come only from God and we desire good things, I assume that I'm not alone in desiring good things, then we know where we must turn. Sin does not come from God, therefore it can never deliver anything good whatsoever. Why then should sin have any attraction for us at all? Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, if we can... If we can leave here with one thing today to take forward into the next week, I pray that it would be a burning desire to seek you and your word, to spend time talking to you and listening to you, Lord. I pray that that would be your gift to us today as we go out with your blessing and your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.